Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the podcast, instead of discussing a new book, we're discussing how a highly accomplished scholar thinks about, organizes, balances, and imagines his different projects. That scholar is my colleague and friend, Dr. Neil Roberts. Dr. Roberts teaches Africana Studies, Political Theory, and the Philosophy of Religion at Williams College. He is the Chair and Associate Professor of Africana Studies and Faculty Affiliate in Political Science and Religion. Dr. Roberts is also the W. Ford Schumann Faculty Fellow in Democratic Studies. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Roberts. Thank you, Adam, for having me, and uh, thanks to your listeners for taking the time out to kind of reason with us. And I just want to say um, you've been an inspiration to many in your generation, uh, and those such as myself, I won't say my age, but of another generation for whom um, what you're doing and the significance of the uh, New Books Network and books, particularly in uh, African and African-American studies is really important. So I want to say thank you. And thank you for that, Dr. Roberts. That, that really, um, that really means a lot. And so, um, you know, once again, thank you for coming on because, you know, we've been, we've, we've plotted getting your, you re- returned on here for the third time, uh, to the New Books Network. And so it's a blessing to have you on. Um, and so, so to get started, um, you know, like I said, thank you for taking the time to speak with me and the li- listening audience about about your your ideas and how you develop them because they're broad ranging and and field changing. Um, so, can you talk to us about what do, like what is what it actually means to work in the tradition that you come from? What does that mean to you? Well, that first and important question um, really does set the you know, framework. I always like to state that I didn't have a linear path to academe or uh, the life of the mind. When I applied to undergraduate colleges and universities, I applied to all but one institution as an undeclared major. Um, I initially had planned on being a chemist. Uh, but also I was a scholar athlete. I played um, soccer or football to those outside the United States um, for a large part of uh, my early life. And um, I thought I was going to be a professional soccer player. And so when I entered undergraduate, um, I was interested in chemistry because I was interested in how there are atoms and molecules, elements, how can things be put together and taken apart? and in my sophomore year, I tore the cartilage in my knee. And I actually had a 
fairly quick recovery, but it was during that time uh, that I not only immersed myself in what we call black studies, but also the geopolitics of the moment. And I began to really read widely in black studies and shifted my focus. So while I initially majored in law and public policy, uh, I did a second um, major in what was then the Afro-American Studies Department, uh, the early department being a program at Brown University, and um, and the rest was history. So I really consider myself a Black Studies soul who later got a PhD in political science, um, but I really see my work um, trying to think through ideas, elements in the world that either may have not been there before at one period of time or were there all along and how do we make sense of it? Mm. And, and with, and with that too, and, and with all of your different writings and such like that, it, it, it all comes down to writing, right? It all comes down to the process and, and, and development over time. Um, so, so can you discuss with, with me and the listening audience about what your normal habits are and and also how they've developed over time, and 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 on the on the last note, we're living under COVID, right? We're living under the Rona. Um, how have your how has the moment affected you in that way? And also, you know what? It, yeah, just just tell us about that if if you, if you can. I want to start with the last. It is very important for your listeners to hear that when we discussed even this conversation. Um, Coronavirus, COVID-19 was not a, um, had not kind of emerged on the global scale. And right now, specifically uh, within the United States context, uh, cities, towns across uh, the country are uh, in uprising with regards to longstanding questions of racial uh, injustice compounded by questions of class inequality and other issues of, of hierarchy. And so um, I state that because as someone who, as we've talked about, um, who is, you know, one of my, my, you know, my previous book was on Frederick Douglass. Um, uh, I wrote my senior undergraduate thesis. As far as I know, the first senior undergraduate thesis um, in the world on the Jamaican thinker, Sylvia Winter. These are all figures for whom writing amidst the absurd and crisis have, um, you know, have been or were a part of their daily lives. So to talk about the writing process for me, I can't disaggregate that from the conditions in which we find ourselves. But as Audre Lord powerfully stated in Sister Outsider, when one is a member of a group for whom there was an attempt to euthanize them or to subjugate them perennially, um, what does it mean for ancestors of that group to not only have survived, but created and created amidst moments of, uh, of adversity? And so, you know, hopefully at least that kind of grounding um, may uh, answer uh, some of what I'm about to say. Uh, with regards to the writing process and have they changed over time? They've absolutely changed over time. So um, years ago, I'd say kind of a couple decades ago, maybe three decades ago, two or three decades ago, um, mm -hmm. I was given the advice when thinking potentially about writing on a topic uh, to do uh, what this one scholar had called executive summaries. And in essence, what that means is um, 
if there is an article or a book or a book chapter to take, no matter what the length of, let's say it's a written work or even an audiovisual work, write no more than three quarters of a single space page to no more than one page summary in one's own words of that work. And then at the end of that file, attach um, related works. And so, you know, I be, you know, years later, I began um, doing that. And I thought that was a very helpful way to organize um, ideas. Uh, and I did that for quite, um, uh, quite a long period of time. And for students who I actually have the privilege of being able to work with outside of um, regular uh, or semester courses, you know, students who I might be working with them, not just on my work, but particularly on theirs, um, but in a sustained and rigorous way. That's something that I still um, have those students and invite those students to do. Having said that, in the last few years, I have completely shifted um, how I write. So in some sense, I give, I provide this model, but then in some ways I'm subverting that very um, model. And so right now, really the last few years, I, I, I have a pocket-sized notebook. And so as um, Cornell West once says, you know, he says he's old school. So I have a pocket-sized notebook in which I have either pencil or pen, and it's non-systematic. If there's something that I've read or seen or remember, even if it's in the middle of the night and I wake up, I um, write a quotation from it or a particular point. Again, non-systematic, non-outlined. Um, and, uh, and, and then I eventually will, you know, days later or weeks later, come back to what I put down and ask myself the question, why, why did that passage or why did that work? Because um, it can even be a citation to something, you know, um, that I read or I heard. And then I try and make sense of it. Why were those put in this pocket size book? And from there, the ideas generate rather than the other way, um, uh, the other way uh, around. I could, I could go on, but those are really the kind of the two models, the kind of the executive summary model, then this pocket size book model, and then really between those poles, um, those tend to be the genesis of an idea. And more importantly, once there might be the germ of an idea, I ask myself, and I would submit to your listeners, um, individuals should ask themselves when embarking on a writing project, one, who is your audience? Because one of the things, particularly when I finished my doctorate, my writing was okay. I'd say it was okay. It was decent. Um, but I didn't particularly like it that much. And the problem was that for a long duration of when I was in graduate school, because I actually taught um, high school before going to graduate school for a period, um, I was writing for the, an audience that I thought I should be writing for. Does that make sense? I was writing for an intellectual and academic community that I thought I should be writing for, but I wasn't writing my soul. And so when I did that, that writing was okay, but, but it was actually not the audience <laughs> that I really wanted to connect with. And once I changed from writing for who I thought I was writing for to what my soul was telling me, 
things were different ever since. So first, the question one has to ask oneself is audience. Second is temporality, the question of time. Are we writing anything from an op-ed to a letter to a friend or loved one to a book? Or producing something, are we producing for the moment? Are we producing for a market? Or are we thinking about, which is how I tend to think, generations down the road? You know, I think of myself. So, so for instance, and Adam McNeil, you are going to be writing um, several important works that we're all going to refer to. But imagine, you know, a thousand years from now, um, when someone uncovers, you know, like wherever it is they're uncovering. I think of things like in a ruins somewhere and then they uncover mm. something. Um, will that actually have significance? And I'm not really being ostentatious about it. I'm being very serious. I think all of us, um, that kind of question of, are there, there are certain things that we really might be writing for a moment and that's fine. But when thinking about kind of projects, um, I actually really tend to think of not even um, within one's lifetime, but also how things transcend because isn't it, isn't it amazing in the midst of all these uprisings, what are we going back to? People are going back to, they're going back to Baldwin. They're going back to Octavia Butler. They're going back to Plato's Republic. They're going back to uh, Gloria Anzaldúa. They're going back to figures um, that might not even be walking with us. But these were people, whether, you know, these were, these were figures who were not just writing the moment, they were, they were, they were writing the problematic. <laughs> they were writing what's the question to which I am seeking a set of answers to. And um, I know that was kind of a grander response to less the kind of mechanics of writing itself, but, um, but I do think that question of audience and then, and then time. Like what are, for each particular written act, what is one imagining uh, the, the significance of mm. that of that work? And I always use the example in my classes, I call it the philosophy of the hourglass. If you think about an hourglass, there are all these different possibilities, but then the sands, you know, kind of go um, through the hourglass. And then ultimately, when you kind of strip down a lot of family, ideas that might have family resemblances to one another, but ultimately, what's the core? What's the grain, you know? Uh, for those who want to go against the green, what's the green? And, and, and I think that will not completely be the answer, but that's, those are some ways rather to think about the act of writing before we get into the content of, you know, <laughs> before we get into the content, the process. Uh, and one last thing, if you don't, if you don't mind me on this, stating this, and this was, this was a, uh, it's a, it's a two part essay that I hope your listeners will read search out for and read by sylvia winter it is one of her less known works um winter wrote in the late 1960s actually 1968 and 1969 to be exact while she was still at the university of the west indies the jamaica kingston campus the mona campus she wrote a two-part essay called we must learn to sit down together and talk about a little culture because <laughs> she mm. was at the university of west indies as someone who had who was initially had trained to be a dancer and an actress um, and had formal education in the Spanish golden age, but felt returning to the newly uh, independent uh, Caribbean. What was her role compared to the emergence of different forms of Creole criticism? And she said the following um, words 
at the beginning of part one of this two-part essay, she wrote, I write, and writing is the impulse of my life. I write not to fulfill a category, fill an order, or supply a consumer. End quote. And that, my friend, is what is also at the back of my head when I think about audience. Who are we writing for? Is it about market? You know, is it about fame? Uh, is it about uh, notoriety? Or is it about writing because we almost, as the Guyanese novelist Wilson Harris said when he talked about his novels and characters, people ask Harris, well, why do you write, have these different characters that seem to kind of reemerge? And he says, you know, they, they kept popping in his head because he had to write them. You know, he had to write them because they were giving an archetype about the human condition both its beauty and promises, but also the underside. And it wasn't about merely market. It was about writing, not to fulfill a consumer, but writing what we need to, what we have to. And I really take that from Winter. I take that from Harris, but I also take that from a lot of voices who we might know their names, but certainly didn't invent this, that really kind of passed this down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that's that's exactly what I was looking for. Exactly what I was looking for. Um and, and it makes me think a lot, um, even just about the writing process, but also about um when you're when when you're imagining, like what what's take us take us to the imagination process, right? Because um, you know, what what is what is what does the imagination process for a project look like for you? Um, you know, either ones that you've already done or even ones that are in the pipeline. So I will mention one that was one of my previously published books and then one in the pipeline, if that's okay. So um, uh, the, I published the political companion to Frederick Douglass in uh, 2018, the bicentennial of the fugitive turned ex-slave Frederick Douglass's um, birth. And, uh, and so some people have asked me, you know, what was it? They kind of felt like I must have had a neat process because for those who are familiar with the text or maybe those who are unfamiliar, it's a, it was particularly um, a work that was meant to try and actually engage Douglass's political thought, but also it comprises roughly 50% novel essays on Douglas, and then 50% different works on Douglas that were published in a variety of different mediums, some accessible, some much less accessible. And it was meant to be a volume for everything together. Um, but I have two um, children, two black boys, one who is now 12 years old and one who is four years old. And I um, was um, away from Williamstown on research sabbatical for a year. Uh, the Douglas book idea was in my my mind, um, but it wasn't. It was something that had kind of stalled. And um, my now four year old son was about one and a half, and I was um, as a caregiver. I was at home with him, and then as he was napping, I turned on the television. And we happened to be in Washington D.C. area for the year at the time. I turned on the television, and the then press secretary. Uh, of President Donald Trump, Sean Spicer, if you all recall, had uh, was giving a press conference because the president was at had made a statement 
um, in which it appeared that he was suggesting that Frederick Douglass was still alive. <laughs> that, you know, he's doing more and more. Mm-hmm. And then Sean Spicer, uh, as his press secretary, was then asked um, in the White House press room um, by one of the reporters, well, what, you know, um, can you clarify the president's statement with regards to Frederick, you know, Douglass? And Spicer's response was, oh, you know, we you know, really are glad that Douglass is, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's doing a great job. He's doing more and more. And it was at that moment <laughs> that I said, I got to finish this book. Right. Mm-hmm. I gotta finish this. Uh, finish this book. Um, now, in terms of how the structure happened and, and some of those other details, some of the processes that I mentioned then went into the process, but that was kind of very uh, kind of different. Um, in terms of the book that I am, I'm finishing a book this year uh, entitled "How to Live Free in an Age of Pessimism." How to live free in an age of pessimism, and um, in terms of to your question, how did this um, how did this emerge from not, my, not so much my Douglas book, but an earlier book I published, uh, Freedom as Marinage. Um, in the wake of that book, in which I argued that freedom is not um, is not a fixed state. It's a it's you know in the French the term marinage m a r r o n a g e though there are different cognates to that spellings. Uh, it just translates as Flight, right? It's a noun that has the effect of a verb. Uh, and nonetheless, in the wake of publishing that um, book, in which I make an, make an argument that freedom is not something that we're simply kind of going towards some endpoint, but it is the act. It's the process of flight itself. I was asked repeatedly, "What do I think of Afro pessimism?" <laughs> now, Adam, you, you know me. Right? I, I do. Pessimism, whatever you want to call pessimism, that is not I. That is not Neil Roberts. Has never been. Um, I respect highly the scholars and different commentators who either use that language or who, who have written about pessimism, but it wasn't something that I was invested in at all. And I kept getting asked this book talks informally, even by members of my family, you know, what do you think about pessimism, Afro-pessimism in particular, but also different, um, genres of pessimism. And then I kept getting pressed about it. Um, and so one thing your listeners might not know is I, I mentioned that I taught high school, but one of the things when I taught, I, I taught senior in AP U.S. government and politics. Uh, But I also, uh, in addition to coordinating the the school I was at, Black Student Union, uh, and and also teaching freshman world history, I was the coach of the forensics team, in which there's speech and debate. Uh, And uh, when, you know, this is something that has been kind of really important to me uh, over the years. And so at Williams uh, College, where I teach, I had a student a few years ago, uh, actually three years to be exact, um, who was taking a class with me called the Black Radical Tradition. And when we were, when I went around asking people, why, why are you enrolled? They had mentioned that they did forensics. They did debate. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. I used to be a, a, a debate coach. And, I, and so I said, well, why, why this course? And they said, oh, well, you know, in the United States, Afro-pessimism was one of the national topics, you know, for the year. Wow. And it was at that moment that I realized, wait a minute, hold on. Pessimism isn't just something in the halls of academia in California in particular, right? Um, Southern California in particular. This is actually... This is being kind of discussed, debated, uh, uh, et cetera. However, um, I, I decided that, um, that this book is not just going to be a response to Afro-pessimism and engagement. This is um, a, like Freedom is Marinage, while there are Afro-modern actors at the, and movements at the heart of the book, um, I wanted to ask myself, um, I've spent a large majority of my career thinking about how we get free. I want to know 
how we live free, Adam. I want to know how we actually live free. And in these uprisings, you know, especially there was uh, a young brother who was interviewed, right, passionately over the weekend. And he said, I, why am I on the streets? He said, I am on the streets because I want to go into a white neighborhood and not, remember this, right? And not mm -hmm. feel safe. He said, I want to live, I want to live, be able to live free. Yeah. And much of our discourse, even when we're taken to the streets, rightly so, um, oftentimes there is conflation between the process of getting free and how we live free. And this is why I'm fascinated, for instance, that a colleague, Saidiya Hartman, is often regularly construed by commentators as an Afro-pessimist, uh, particularly with regards to Hartman's brilliant book, The Scenes of Subjection, but not exclusively. I find it so amazing that Hartman recently published a wonderful book, right? Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. Uh, in which it's focused on young black girls from the 1890s to the mid 1930s, who what Hartman calls were in, were uh, were wayward or riotous, but not to be chaotic. Meaning that these are, these are girls who even W. E. B. Du Bois and the Philadelphia Negro overlooked or pathologized. Right? She said these were individuals who were trying to not only imagine the free life, but to live it their way. Right? To live it their way. And that these stories, both people in Hartman's case who had excavated um, the works of certain figures that she could identify to others whose narratives we might not even know their names. They were thinking about how to live free. And so this book, How to Live Free in the Age of Pessimism, it's, it's, it's not concerned with the, the minutiae details of, 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 of purely engaging with some of our leading thinkers in Afro-pessimism. It is actually taking the reader in, a, in some sense, a kind of a grand journey together between fundamentally, what do we mean when we talk about the idea of pessimism? Because pessimism is not to be confused with nihilism, right? Pessimism is very different. Pessimists of different variety, not just Afro-pessimists, but in the Western tradition, Western philosophy, international relations, and also most recently within Afro-pessimism. Pessimists are individuals who hold out the promise that there may be a future that could be realizable. They, she or he the, has real questions about whether that will be realized. And I asked, the, I asked the question, given these different, what I call genres of pessimism that the book articulates, given that, how do we answer that prompt that I mentioned before with Audre Lorde? How do we answer for those people who were never meant to survive and they still not only have survived, but they have created, right? They have resisted. You also had, I believe, Vincent Brown on regarding Tacky's revolt, right? Recently, mm -hmm. in terms of the new book. How do we think about not merely the Haitian Revolution that ends in 1804, right? But how do we actually explain phenomena such as Tacky's revolt that is often misconstrued as simply one revolt in one moment, but actually something that percolates all across the colonial the island of Jamaica, right? In this, uh, in the kind of the late modern between early modern to kind of modern period how do we explain those people who were kind of uh reduced to the condition of unfreedom who had every reason if one is thinking purely in terms of rationality uh to believe that um freedom could not only be acquired but maintained and lived who never gave 
up. That's what I'm trying to ask. And also in How to Live Free in Age of Pessimism, I'm also trying to address in a significant part of the book, which is, what do we mean when we say radicalism or radical? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and do I, and do I, can, we get, can we get to the heart of this, Adam? And, you know, we are both contributors to, but also um, reason with scholars, for instance, connected to the African-American Intellectual Historical Society. I think AAIHS has been a, a and particularly your generation, has been at the forefront of thinking about it. But how do we actually make sense, either in titles of works or in the content, with different works that have versions of radicalism, the radical tradition, radicalizing, right, and put black or blackness in relation to those and can join us. Are we all talking about the same thing? Are we really um, talking about the same thing? If everything was radical, right, um, then we can't really explain not merely genres of conservative thought, but different modes of liberal political theory and, uh, and activism that, um, that might not best be classified as, uh, as radical. Um, we also have to think about whatever radical means, um, certainly etymologically connected to a root of some sort. Um, but I'm trying to kind of think through and really think with, with, with you all, you know, not because not I'm right, but really to, to kind of think collectively and then generate conversations for people to do their own works, to think about um, if radical could mean beyond just going to the root or also addressing modes of thought and, and, and action that are not merely left of center, but also could be kind of right of center, then how do we connect those to what might be called um, the black radical tradition, which oftentimes is articulated as a tradition that is within the U.S. context alone that I want to push out against and actually really be broader uh, than the U.S. context, but also um, one in which it should not be understood as merely a critique of black politics understood in its liberal, libertarian and conservative forms, but also um, constitutive of it. Right. And so if we're to think about how do we actually. Hopefully you can still hear me. Um, If we can think about how to then articulate not only the black radical tradition in its transnational and internationalist dimensions, but also what are the ways in which the black radical tradition has its articulations of different genres of pessimism, but also responses to pessimism uh, that um, can be cataloged not only past and in the present, but also could be imagined in the future. Mm. And, and I think that what you're bringing up is perfect for our for a moment. Um, think about it, right? All of the the chaos and and right the 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 flames. And, and I spoke about this in my last interview with uh, Dr. Josh Bennett, where this it, it was uh, it was on Friday, right? Back back in May, right? Now we're in June, and you see on on the television all of the flames and such and that's an opportunity if you see it as that right that something's being destroyed and so that something else can can then come in its stead and what you're bringing to bear in your ideas is something that is perfectly aligned to the moment um 
chaotically, right? You know, I'm sure you didn't expect all of this to happen as you're putting this book together, but here we are. Um, and so, first of all, thank you for your work. And, and also, uh, thank you for helping us better think about our moment. Um, and it actually goes to why ideas are so important and why you should think about the broader time frame as opposed to the, the specificity of the moment. Because ideas come out of a moment, but when you began the project, right, that the, 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 the surrounding elements of the world were much different than they are now, which also goes to show that it's going to provide to, to later generations a blueprint, a way of thinking and a way of potentially aligning politically um, to and maybe even a way to go against. Right. Because not everyone obviously will agree with with our um, characterizations and theorizations, um, but we still do the work. Um, and, and it makes me think about. Right. I never thought about this until recently, but we're creatives. Right. This is a creative process. Um, and so with that, too. Over time, how have your creative habits changed over the course of the different stages of your career with the different projects that you've uh, that you've uh, taken under? Ooh, um, well, becoming a parent is one of them, and I really want to 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 stress the the not just the human, but also the the kind of the family dimensions. You know, in this. COVID-19 moment, kind of the Rona, right? Um, There are the kind of the two viruses, at least, the kind of the virus of racism and the coronavirus. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, what does productivity even mean? You know, (laughs) I mean, I've said all of what I've said already, but Mm -hmm. but at at a certain moment and and you probably experience this and others listening right who are teachers or students or both um you know when we had to go to remote education you know when i'm having a for the synchronous parts of my classes that got removed to remote education you know my youngest sometimes you know walked in the door and and essentially joined the class you know kind of in and out that's a different um uh was it imagined that way in the beginning of the semester no but we have to um we have to adapt and uh, I and everyone handles this differently. You know, in my case, you know, being at home uh, with our family, uh, those they, they are they're they're my that's my kin. That's my that, that, that those are my those are my boys. And um, and so it's important not only when I'm teaching, but also when I'm writing to not um, silence that right. And that also does mean for. Um, for others, for whom whatever home is considered is not necess- it, it can also be uh, a site of contention. Right? It can be very difficult. And so, what I would say in terms of how things have, for me, to your question, how have they changed over time? I think whether it was being tone deaf or whether it was being naive, I I I, I felt as if when it even came to writing. Um, that I had these very demarcated spaces, for instance, to write. You know, I'm not in my office, for instance, right? Um, mm-hmm. When we moved to remote education, it was unclear whether people could even get back in their offices. And I, I did one of these, um, you know, uh, when I did go into my office, I had, you know, basically 15 minutes and I pretty much just took whatever books I thought I would need 
Or who knows? Who knew? The next week, the next two weeks, the next year, you know, unclear um, with me. And so um, that really does shift how we do work, but also what it does do. And maybe this was perhaps not something that I had expected. When one doesn't easily have either physical materials or documents or access to libraries as easily um, minus what's available online, um, it actually lets one home in on what's the most important, right? Sometimes you do might need a document or a text, and, and, and that's really important, but also it illuminates a lot of things that maybe you didn't need in the first place. And that's what I'm, I've found as well finishing this latest, latest book is that it really has illuminated certain things that maybe I didn't need all, uh, uh, overall. And also in terms of the sense of time, yeah, you know, I want to get this out, but, you know, um, if it's delayed, Adam, let's ask yourself, if it's a de- delayed um, a little bit, you know, what's more important for me is also thinking about, and especially as we see these uprisings and looking at my children and looking at their lives and when they're going to go, I'm thinking about what is the kind of most significance of not only writing the moment, but what's going to kind of stay with them. So I, I really want to embark on works that will, will stay with them. Now, we have to also own up to our particular privileges, right? There are students, not just graduate students, undergraduates, people in high school and different school systems for which time, money, right, <laughs> may be involved in their, their studies. So there are postdocs, right, contingent faculty, right, people on contracts for whom um, health insurance, uh, uh, the daily living kind of resources for daily living, these may have a, may have a time on them, right? And, and so we have to kind of adjudicate those decisions as, you know, as, as, as well. So, um, and I want to kind of recognize that because the decisions that we make, some of which of our, our own choosing and other things are, are the circumstances, the real circumstances that, are, that, that, reflect for those not just historically but in the moment who their status within a state depending on whether they're documented or not may impact right <laughs> whether she already thinks that they're going to you know potentially be um apprehended and, and sent off and moved right deported these are going to affect those questions of uh of time and so really what we're bearing witness to is not only the methods of of writing and, and, and publications, but also what do each of us have or do not have access to? And also that question of, uh, of um, the kind of the urgency, right? And sometimes there are things that even if it's not in the form that we want it, um, maybe we have to finish them, you know? Maybe, well, rather I wouldn't use, I, I will walk that back, not finish, but maybe we have to get something in, right? Maybe mm-hmm. we have to get something in, um, not because that is the talos, Sometimes we have to get things in. We have deadlines, um, not just because an editor says so, but because li- you know our very livelihood depends on it. And those are decisions we have to take seriously. Those are not cavalier um, decisions. But I would just submit to everyone is that um, we can make the, those those choices, um, and, and, and but then thinking about if we have to make those choices, then if in a moment we have to submit, we have to do it because of these conditions, right? For ourselves, for our family, we have to do this. 
then we have to do this. Um, but are there extensions of that project that maybe got submitted in a particular form that maybe that wasn't the intentionality? Are there any kind of extensions of that that might be able to, let's say, have one fulfill? Does it make sense? To fulfill mm-hmm. um, the kind of the work and promise. So these are the, as you're hearing right now, I'm not tell, everyone is probably like, well, Roberts is not giving us the, you know, the, you know, the kind of, this is not the kind of the 10 point plan for everyone. One size does not fit all. But what I am saying is that um, if we don't admit that we are in formation, even when we might've done several things before, then I think we're not really being true. Right? We're not really being, um, not being true. And what I've learned, or at least also learned from others is that um, when we kind of acknowledge those really difficult moments, it's really powerful. Last thing I'll say on this particular point is um, uh, they're even thinking about how people have been teaching kind of fair Griffin um, had a kind of brilliant post with regards to teaching during COVID-19 teaching African-American literature in which she gave an account of what did it mean for the requirements for her course for her students? You know, are you teaching, giving assignments and writing prompts in the same way? Or are you, or are we asking about how are people wrestling with, um, uh, the coronavirus, particularly when um, within the U.S. context, but also in different parts of the world, but specifically in the U.S., uh, when uh, Black folk, people of African descent living or residing in the U.S. are asymmetrically right now not only have been uh, persons who have been uh, tested positive for the virus, but all who are dying, right? Who are actually dying of this. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, who are protesting, putting their life in harm's way, not only with regards to their relationship between citizens uh, person and police, but also um, even when protesting with mass, um, kind of harm's way. There's the the kind of the chilling image of the uh, the black protester who then has his mask, remember this, right? Has his mask taken down by the officer and then pepper pepper sprayed, right? So actually, you have someone going out recognizing that the, the at the public health standpoint, there's already in addition to their uh, kind of the question of their blackness, but also the ways in which being in um, outside, in collectivities itself uh, is a, a kind of a danger. And then even in the face of that being, having that, um, uh, by pulling that person's mask down, this kind of reminder of questions of dehumanization. And what, what Sylvia Winter and, and others have really tried to underscore for us, and I've, I think I've tried to learn from them is, how do we actually talk about processes of rehumanization? Processes of rehumanization, because unfortunately, there are many people who talk about dehumanization or being subhuman who then make the position that kind of black people who've been racialized as black in the modern period were never human. And I fundamentally reject that. I fundamentally reject that we were never human. We were human. We've been, by, by acts of bad faith and others, been deluded into believing that we were never human. So rehumanization is about taking back what we already have. This is why, it's not just a book, this has been a long-standing belief of mine, which is why the conception of slavery as a form of social death, so prominently articulated by the sociologist Orlando Patterson in his 1982 work, Slavery and Social Death, by the way, the same year that Cornel West publishes Prophesied Deliverance, which I'll come back to in a moment. 
that do. For, for that for Patterson, right? Social death, in my words, not his, is like the living zombie, the individual or individuals for whom they are. That slavery was like being a living zombie, and the only way to so-called get free, not yet live free, but to get free, is for a uh, a masterclass to then enable the enslaved to become free, right? But um, but that cannot explain revolution. The theory of social death cannot explain revolution. It can't explain how people then in the past and now, my friend, are uprising, whether people are using the term riot, rebellion, revolt, um, but that they are all uprising in the wake of all of what we are have faced and are facing. Social death cannot explain that. And I'm really interested in those who have not only, whether they use the terms certain terms or not as alternative vocabularies, um, but through their actions, not just the words, but also through their actions. There, you mentioned the creativity, the idea of kind of creating, right? Because fundamentally um, at its root, right? The term culture, right? Comes fundamentally at its root from the meaning of to create, creation, right? Mm -hmm. And so what is, if we want to talk about black culture or black cultures rather in the plural, um, these are cultures that fundamentally continue to create and uh, resist uh, the social death that in a lot of pessimistic discourse, not just Afro-pessimists, but in a lot of other discourses uh, have used. That fundamentally for me, humans are agentic beings that have had agency, however constrained. And the question is, how do we tap into that agency that we have always had? We've always had. Um, and then, um, not again, as I said, not merely get free, but then once our conception of what freedom may be, then um, how do we live free? And while this is not a diagnosis, also in that winter essay from 1968 that I imagined, it was something that I'd never noticed until recently. I'd read it several times, but Winter wrote, quote, freedom means the rejection of the quote-unquote white lies and the acceptance of the quote-unquote black truth of his condition. Our condition is one of uprootedness, end quotation. One of uprootedness. And so if we have always been human, but there have been ways to delude us of our humanity, then we need to think about what does it mean to rehumanize and how does culture, um, that many social scientists, particularly the field that I formerly had my PhD, political science, often doesn't want to talk about culture as a variable, right? <laughs> political scientists like to say, oh, why don't you talk to the anthropologists and sociologists and the black studies folks, right? <laughs> about culture, right? right? They can talk about culture. Um, no, 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 that is fundamentally wrong. Culture uh, is that you have individuals claiming that we are kind of de-raced, that there are normative definitions of what does it mean to be free um, and what are our rights uh, outside of particular areas and outside of culture and then normalize things as if culture didn't form it, you know? Um, and, uh, and this is why when I think one of the prompts you had mentioned to me was thinking, if it's okay to talk about it, thinking about yeah. works, works that inspire me, um, in this particular, um, moment, there are kind of three authors, one of which I've already mentioned, um, um, one Sylvia Winter, particularly Winter's 1962 novel, The Hills of Hebron, which is actually really was uh, really was a novel of the 50s that was published in the year of Jamaica's independence first. The second, uh, a series of works by the uh, late Martinican psychiatrist and philosopher and revolutionary Franz Fanon, particularly Fanon's uh, Black Skin, White Mass of 
1952. Uh, his book that he published when he knew he was dying of leukemia, The Wretched of the Earth, La Damne de la Terre in 1961, um, but also a recent vo posthumous volume, Alienation and Freedom, uh, kind of that has a lot of works of Fanon that either were not published before, but were either um, both unpublished, but also works that were published, but yet hard to find, in addition to Fanon's essay and speech, Racism and Culture. And then last but not least, um, a book that I mentioned um, by uh, Professor Cornell West, his first, and I still believe his most poignant book, Prophesied Deliverance, A Revolutionary Afro-American Christianity, in which West gives this archaeology of not only racism in the modern world, uh, but also the ways in which he tries to articulate different traditions of response within Black thought, life, and culture. And he has these four traditions of which he ends with the so-called humanist tradition. And, uh, and, and, and I have found going back to this, that um, these taken as a whole really point to not only something that Fanon tried to wrestle with, not solely, but particularly in The Wretched of the Earth, which is what do we mean by violence? Why is violence implemented? By whom? Is violence implemented, and why must we be thinking in terms of violence and nonviolence, and particularly those who've been subjugated and oppressed? Why? Why are they doing it? So called. Why are those people doing it? Chris <laughs> is saying, well, what were those people subjected to, and are there any circumstances under which she or he may implement violence, not merely as analysts of violence throughout time often talked about in instrumental terms, not by a means to an end, but what I call. Fanon's turn to intrinsic violence. What does it mean? It, can violence have an inherent good, whether or not, or rather outside the metric of means and ends, if it is the only circumstances under which individuals find themselves? Last point on this is that Hannah Arendt and on violence, the German emigrate thinker on, on violence, um, had a terrible understanding of uh, racism in uh, in American history. Uh, and that book, along with her essay on Little Rock School Desegregation, were, were really uh, blindsides by Arendt. However, in On Violence, Arendt nonetheless makes the claim that um, oftentimes we put as a contrast to violence, nonviolence. But Arendt says that's actually um, incorrect, that the opposite of violence to Arendt is power. <laughs> Power and violence are opposites for our Hannah Arendt. And Hannah Arendt also was misguided in On Violence in her essay, uh, published, by the way, the same period that Sylvia Winter wrote her essays on culture, in which Arendt made the argument that violence in all forms is not only apolitical, but anti-political. She was flat wrong uh, on that, I believe. However, Arendt made the argument that power is not only acting, but acting in concert. And that violence often arises when power is in jeopardy, or rather when people exercise power over those for whom are the uh, not so much the powerless, but have are in less a position of power. So what I would submit is that when we're thinking about not only the writing process, but also these uprisings and where we all fit into all of this, regardless of the topics of our writing, we might want to ask ourselves not what's wrong with those so-called people who might be using the implements of violence. The bigger question is, how do we actually understand power? And 
how are individuals' relationships to power informing their condition either of unfreedom, non-freedom, or free, or, or, or kind of living the free, uh, living the free life, such that when there have been protests in Michigan and all over the country on state capitals talking about stay-at-home orders, particularly racialized, right? Uh, stay-at-home orders that they, that they need to be liberated, right? Adam, you know this, right? That they need to be liberated from all this. Is that actually, um, are they needing to be liberated or is the question of black freedom in some sense a kind of uh, an emancipation from the white lies that Winter talked about, the kind of a version of, of liberation that is actually, is actually masquerading itself as a form of freedom? And perhaps what needs to be asked when we think about the question of power and what it means to not only get free uh, in those same state capitals when there were different kind of black activists who then um, were talking about what does it mean to exercise the Second Amendment rights. Uh, something that, by the way, Ida B. Wells Barnett in Southern Horrors talked about uh, when black people um, have been the object of state terrorism and, 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 and state violence and paramilitary um, lynchings. Uh, is, are there grounds to which um, one needs to protect oneself against those who use, as Jefferson Davis did once, the language of, of freedom, but the freedom for, as Jefferson Davis said before he passed, and as Ibram Kendi and others have mentioned, freedom for a kind of a, a conception of the white republic. And what we're witnessing now is a return to those questions of, of what do we mean about getting free and living free, but also how it connects to power, also how it connects to violence. And we're going to have, as you, as you mentioned, we're going to disagree. And we should. We all are going to have different kind of opinions on that. I would just submit that we take more nuance in terms of not pathologizing the actions of those who are in the midst of uprising, but asking the deeper question, why do, sh why do men, people who are protesting right now believe that they must protest? And that protest can take a public form, but protest need not just take um, a public form. Uh, and, 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 and that is at the heart. Everyone can make their contribution. So maybe for someone it's writing an op-ed or writing a letter that's not published, won't be seen by anyone, let's say, but someone else they send it to necessarily. All of these have their significance. That question I opened with, the point, rather, mm -hmm. what's, who's your audience? The two points. Who are, who's your audience? What is the significance of what you want it, are hoping to do? What I am hoping to do? What your listeners are hoping to do? We have to determine that and then think about how that affects not only the work that we might do, but also that we are a part of a long-standing narrative. The 1619 Project, not to, it is not just a project of the brilliant Nicole Hannah-Jones. It is a project that is one, as Nicole Hannah-Jones has said, um, began <laughs> that project that started through the New York Times Magazine. It was something that started in 1619 in Point Comfort when those 20 or so persons who were enslaved in the then new, relatively new colony of America. That is when that project started. And what we are witnessing now 
is a long durée. We're witnessing a long durée in terms of thinking about freedom that did not begin with Floyd's execution, because that's really what it was. Um, mm -hmm. It was an execution. It wasn't a murder. It wasn't, a, it wasn't because of pre-existing pre conditions. It was an execution caught on camera. It did not begin with that. Um, and so if we understand this long durée, framework and these interconnections and how that may impact us then think about if it matters right this question of mattering um if all black lives matter then what are we what is the what is the work that we're doing in the service of what mm. Because if you can't answer, I don't know you, but if we can't, if, if, if that cannot be answered, then we need to each look in the mirror. If we cannot answer in the service of whom and what, if we cannot answer that, then we can go on and I can talk about it and you can have other guests on to talk about their mechanics of their writing process. But if, if that cannot be answered, then, what, then, <laughs> then, then, then you're moving too fast. You're moving too fast. And as I said, I go back to the notebook. That's why I said my writing process has changed over time. I had a more formulaic executive summaries model. And then I moved to initially having this notebook. And then in some sense, a kind of mixture of both. Because there's some things that we have planned. And there's other things that are uh, might seem haphazard. But they actually are interconnected. Um, we might not know it then. And that might be your prompt with regards to the call to black studies. Because you phrase it as a call. If I understood, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> not a not a profession, right? Right. There are those who work, but a call. What is the call to black studies? Whatever unit one might find themselves in, and I have relatives and friends too. They're not in academia, right? Their black studies for them is a is a is a is 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 is, is human study. So, um, if we are called, that's why I go back to also prophesied deliverance. I still say West people will have their views of Cornell West. And, they're in t and they should have them, and it is not going to be consensus, right? However, that question, what, what is Weff getting at? He wasn't talking, he uses the term prophesying, which is different than prophecy, right? Prophecy mm -hmm. is something that is then, uh, you, know, is a, you know, something has happened, there's a vision, right? Different kind of, in black political thought, you have different versions of, you hear the term like black visions, you know? But prophesying is the act it's like modernized it's the kind of we're actually in the midst of act and we're doing things and in some sense are doing things in a particular moment whether it was not premeditated that in and of itself can have an effect at a metaphysical level of prophesying right of then creating the terms for then that calling in my case that that sophomore year college calling of someone who thought he was going to be this professional soccer player and i think i could have had a good future in that <laughs> um, but you know what? That wasn't my calling. Mm. And I think in, and there have been various studies with the so-called when black studies becomes institutionalized in the late 60s for many units to then an academic unit, then in the professionalization of black studies, some people have confused the kind of credentialing with actually black studies. I mean, figures like Fred Moten and certain figures in fug fugitive political thinking have thought about notions such as the undercommons, you know? So it's not black studies in the plural, it's black study. You know, black studies with IES 
is about some a field that has become professionalized within academe. Black study, singular. I take Moton, even though Fred and I may disagree on uh, the value of the idea of social justice, for instance, but I take black study to mean what are those heretical interventions that might be done both inside and outside the parameters of, uh, of uh, academe. And this is why when we think of Sylvia Winter's novel, her wonderful novel, I hope everyone reads and rereads, The Hills of Hebron, that Winter wrote, published in the year of Jamaica's independence, but it was really a novel of the 1950s. Winter was trying to, under, if I understand the novel, Winter was trying to understand in the late colonial period, if we are imagining or prophesying, so to speak, not just prophecy, but we're in the midst of imagining uh, and working towards what might be, in her view, the post-colony. Um, she's not obsessed in that novel with the British. British characters, planter class, very little focus in this. She focuses on this revivalist community in the hills outside Kingston, you know, uh, founded on an original sin of the prophet, literally the prophet Moses in the novel, who then founds, is one of the founders of this community. Uh, and then there is, there is, it finds out that there is someone who's going to give birth in spite of a vow of celibacy that was supposed to have been given to all the members of the community. And the novel is then winter thinking through not just black male leadership that oftentimes gets put at the forefront of these discussions, but also kind of the role of black women, Amy, not Amy Jacques Garvey, but Amy Ashwood Garvey, um, Mm -hmm. who helped co-found the Universal Negro an improvement association with Marcus Mosiah Garvey was the impact for one of the figures, Myth Gotha for winter, right? The, how does black female leadership uh, think through the future? And then also how do we actually wrestle with the community and the visions that we might have might not be the visions that we should be following, (laughs) might not be the visions that we should be following. But that Mm. does not mean that does not mean that we should uh, give up. That does not mean that we should not keep trying to create, keep discussing, and how things that might appear irrational, as the 17th century Ethiopian thinker Zade Yaakov, who was lived in a cave for two years, the same year that Rene Descartes published his Meditations on Doubt and Cartesian Plain, this thinker in Ethiopia that had not been colonized by the Europeans lived for two years in a cave and then wrote this text, the Hatana, where he thought about how do we actually talk about living when um, our vision of, the, of, of what we want to live, how we want to live, might actually be the most irrational thing. But for Zadi Yaakov, you know, like members of the Rastafari, you know, rash, the reason is in the heart. It's not in the mind. So if we actually are moved by what is in our heart, which is irrational, but as Toni Morrison says in the source before she passed, in the source of self-regard, right, that um, uh, irrationality and unreason might be the most reasonable thing we might do in these moments of crisis. In these mm-hmm. moments, uh, in these moments of crisis, perhaps unreason or irrationality might be the most reasonable thing that we do. And if we can tap into not only kind of rational modes of discourse, but also the irrational modes of discourse, the calling, right? Because black studies, even to talk of black studies now, even you having this show, right? Go back a few, even just a few decades. That's an irrational 
imagination, imaginary. You know what I'm saying? It's an irrational. <laughs> that would have been, been irrational. But yet, at the same time, we that that is this is where we are, and we and 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 more things have to. Ha- and that doesn't mean I want to be very clear. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy because I reject this idea that forward time, linear time, is progress. Right. Um, uh, as we see with the rise and fall of reconstruction. Linear time need not be progress, and I think that's where we're also in another moment. Um, but that doesn't mean that transformation and visions and also callings being called um, is not, uh, these dynamics are not at, um, not at, at work. Mm. Whew, man, that's a meditation right there. That is a meditation. And I'm, 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 I was literally just on my phone, just taking notes because I'm like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to miss anything. Um, and really what you're talking about is right. And, and you covered some of the questions, which I'm very happy about, but for me, the, the, the one that that's still left on the table for me to ask you though, is what are you fighting for? Right. What, 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 what is it that, you know, what it, what are the things? Because I'm sure that there are multiple uh, impulses here. But what world are you fighting for? For you know, for your children and for you know, for for the, everyone else in in this world and that'll come after. So, yeah, what are we fighting for? Um, I think what we are fighting for are at least three things. Dignity, respect, and freedom. Dignity, respect, and freedom. With respect, respect for not only oneself, but for others. Uh, Dignity to be acknowledged. This is not merely about recognition. That's why Fanon in that chapter on the black and recognition and black skin, white mass spends so much time that freedom is not about being recognized, right? <laughs> it's not about being acknowledged. It's something deeper, but there is this question of our dignity and what does it mean to not only get free, but also live free and those taken as a whole dignity, respect, and freedom for the human, right? Together. And if those could be understood, then it gives us a more than a window in terms of what are we fighting for? Because Douglas, Frederick Douglass, in his West India Emancipation speech, kind of memorably said, you know, with, you know, that um, if there is no struggle, there is no progress, right? And when, and what did he also say? Douglas says, remember, power concedes nothing without a demand mm-hmm. it never did and fill it in and it never it never will it never will never will that's what we are and and that is even when we are putting frederick douglas in a reflective glass and saying douglas d- didn't have all the answers or also had these problematic um dimensions to him but the question is can we can we can we refashion even those types of um visions how do we actually think about dignity respect and freedom when linear time 
forward isn't, and also rationality are, the, are not the only ways of how we can be. And this question of posterity, ancestors and posterity. A film such as Black Panther garnered not only popular um, reception, but also even within Black political thought, um, some pieces that push back about it. But one of the things, however nuanced that film did, was that it actually foregrounded very early on those for whom, groups for whom there is a conception of our relationship to our ancestors. So you ask me, who are we fighting for? Um, yes, we are fighting for ourselves, our loved ones, our family. Um, we are fighting for the future. I know in my case, I'm fighting, when I think of my children, I'm fighting for, uh, uh, for my children. Um, but we are also fighting for our ancestors for whom dignity, respect, and freedom might not have been realized in the way that they had either imagined or the maintaining of dignity, respect, and freedom was called into jeopardy, not because they never had the capacity to experience it, but because there may have been an assault on their very ability uh, to uh, have that realized on a day-to-day basis. That's what I'm fighting for. I don't, I don't know about the, the everyone else, but I think those might not be comprehensively all that there is, but is at least part and parcel of what's going on. And, and when you talk about fighting for the dignity of, of the ancestors, that to me is the most salient and the most succinct of what I think of what I, of what I do. Um, as a historian of the 18th century and the 19th century, I'm like, because I want to, I want to have a, a world where we do not have people out here talking about how Rosa Parks should have taken a, a Lyft or an Uber, right? Uh, and, or, um, you know, I want to live in a world where, you know, people, you know, uh, you know, people like T.I. or Clifford Harris say, um, you know, this is Atlanta. We live in Wakanda. This is Wakanda. And it's like, hold on, fam. Uh, that that Wakanda's fake. And and then it was working with the feds. Like, what? Come on, man. Like, you know, that's I hope that's not your model. Um, but unfortunately, it is. And, and they're not, you know, they're the most popular examples. But as we've probably seen uh together over the last couple of years since the film's release as positive as it is in in many ways there are some that especially in a conversation like we're having can be problematic because some some folks take the take the screen and apply it to their real lives um and and we can kind of see that as a tragic dimension that can come up even in the midst of 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 uprisings um and so, you know, I'm I'm just very, man. First of all, you you've given us a syllabus uh, uh, for the summer, you know, a a, a, a summer syllabus of reading, and so I really appreciate that. And so, um, one of the last questions I have for you is, for the work that you do as a scholar, as a writer, as a creative, and as a human, 
what are the most rewarding aspects of your work? Oh, you know, I think that if I were to say kind of the most rewarding is um, whenever I'm fortunate to hear that um, my work is being not so much just discussed or shared with people and communities that deep down I wish were the case, but there's no way for me to tell, you know, so whether that is, um, um, because I really don't see going back to that audience when I was mentioning halfway through our discussion that um, there was that period where I felt like for a period of time, I was writing for an academic audience and then shifting to writing about for, you know, kind of for an audience that I wish can, 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 can benefit from the conversation of the, of, of the, of, of works that I'm doing. Um, it's, if I get an email from, you know, someone in, you know, high school you know, saying they're, they kind of read something to a relative, um, you know, hundreds of miles away who might've encountered someone uh, who kind of mentioned something that I, uh, that I might have con- con- done or con- contributed to, but also, um, you know, I, I know I've mentioned my kind of children a lot, but uh, but it's really important. I am going to add one more work to the working syllabus. Um, you know, I I was a bit um, slower to get in terms of the Twitter age, so to speak, but one of the um, you know, my son, my oldest is, is now turned, you know, it turned 12 years old. And, um, I believe that kind of questions of not just freedom, but also how race and racism intersect with it are, are, are really important. And so I read with him, um, uh, Jason Reynolds and Ibram Kendi, uh, have a book mm. together, uh, called Stamped. Um, racism, anti-racism, and us, which is mainly the text by the young adult author Jason Reynolds, but it's based off of Kendi's National Book Awarding book, Stamped from the Beginning, in which uh, Reynolds is writing this text in his own way, taking the core ideas of Kendi, but really writing for a book that I thought was just for kind of young people and 12-year-olds, but it, uh, at that age, 12, 13, 11 but it really is a book for all of us. And, and it, so what's rewarding, what's rewarding is that um, it's actually not my work, but it's rewarding. What's rewarding to me, it's rewarding that a work like that then allowed my oldest son who had heard or even seen other things that I've done or heard me talk about it, but not quite frankly read it, not because he couldn't, but, you know, um, we didn't necessarily, you know, those aren't the subjects of kind of dinner conversations. It is now, right? Like he wants to um, know what I am doing or hear about it. And then even in his, even though he's 12, he might hear me say something and saying, well, I don't know if that speaks to me. And if it doesn't speak to him, uh, just because he's 12 doesn't mean he can't understand. You follow? Just be, I think mm-hmm. we, we, we underestimate um, what we believe others might wish to talk about. And we underestimate what form education takes. 
So I don't take the approach that my students or my son, for instance, my sons are the ones learning from me. I take the approach that I'm either learning with them and then there's also things that they can teach me. There are specifically historical and philosophical ideas and movements that 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 I have become privy to that that they have not yet and I can certainly teach but but going back to the question of what rewards me I think it's the it's 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 really that question again of audience and also um that if I can be reminded that I'm still a learner rather than merely a teacher or a scholar who produces work for others, but who actually continues to learn. Um, that keeps me grounded. And that gives me great satisfaction because it is that it is those moments that will keep us all grounded as we try and make not only make sense of the TI statement or the uprisings in Minneapolis and all across the country and then now the world, right, <laughs> who are kind of connected to it, but that this is not, um, you know, that, that, that these are, 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 it's not just the, there is the moment, but there's also the kind of, movement right there was blm like kind of black lives matter movement then there ended up being the movement for black lives which is not one organization right or one kind of central location it is a cluster right of individuals concerned with an issue um that we're still thinking with that's what gives me um satisfaction and um and i think that has to be among the foundations to kind of drive myself, drive you, drive others to do the work that we all need, right? We need your work. We need your work. We need the, 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 the work of the many to really kind of sift through and ascertain or be reminded of work that was already done, but we overlooked, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and that's, that's how I would answer that. Perfect. And that and that and that to me is very very important because at the end of the day we need the reminder constantly of what we are doing why we are doing it and the communities who we work on behalf of no matter if we're at a public or a private institution educationally or you know, what, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever um, foundation, quote unquote, funds us and all that. We need to, we need to be accountable. We need to be held accountable um, by our families, by their, by our communities, by the people that we love the most to keep us accountable to ensure that, you know, our, our moral statement, I guess, right? Which which we all have in in public and in hidden transcripts of our of our lives, that we are held accountable to that because in moments like this, you got to pick a side, and you got to pick a side on who who you're working on behalf of, right? Are you on the behalf of the corporations? Are you on the on behalf of of the government? Or are you on behalf of the people? And 
you know, th- when I think about the work that I do with New Books and FAM and 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 the conversations and the critical conversations I bring together, I don't just do this for my gra- own gratification. Um, I do it on behalf of the listeners. I do it on behalf of the people that will listen now and as long as this lives. Um, and, and hopefully the conversations and, and the people that we have on and the laugh and the joy and the and the excitement that these ideas and these books bring can be shepherded um to to create a better world uh that that I believe in this moment we can really we could really create um and so for me that that's that's why I brought you on um and, and it's and it's interesting this is probably going to be the longest interview that I've done out of the now 67 that I've done so far and yet this is not on a book which I think it makes it even more exceptional because now once we get to the book it's going to be on and popping <laughs> uh, so, so it, it's gonna be it's gonna be a good one and so um you know it, are, are there any other final thoughts that that you would just want to add to to the to the conversation before we head out i would just end with the you know first thanking you again for uh offering me the time to reason with you uh, and your listeners and so i really appreciate it um and we're all fortunate to, to have you in our lives and all that you're doing. And second, I would leave us with the image of the Sankofa bird uh, from the west coast of what is now Ghana, the concept of the bird that then looks to the past, right? <laughs> looks mm-hmm. to the ancestors and yet looks to the ancestors as a mechanism to then uh, make sense not only of our present, but our future. The, in some sense, Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, Octavia Butler's The Parable of the Sower, Prophesied Deliverance, The Hills of Hebron, uh, the many texts, and figures. We see this in the cinematic representation of the life of Harriet Tubman. That in many regards, we have to be thinking about all these dimensions together. And it is for those very reasons that will allow us to propel us to, what did Baldwin you know, say? To, he said, achieve our country. But he was mm-hmm. not really talking about just merely, uh, and Richard Rorty has a riff off this, but it's not merely the idea of country in the nation state sense. I would, I would amend and say, in some sense, saying to, to achieve or rehumanize ourselves, right? Um, uh, to, you know, he has an interview where he says, you know, I'm not a pessimist, right? <laughs> now he's, he, he doesn't use the term optimism or other, but he says, he says, I'm not a pessimist, but I can't ignore the condition that. Uh, black women and boys and girls kind of are facing. But if transformation is to happen, then Baldwin, with his implicitly Winterian sensibility, would uh, have to reach into those ancestors. You know, in the novel form, that's to go tell it on a mountain, right? Mm-hmm. But this is the this is the the kind of, in some sense, church speaking through prose.
and this metaphysical um, that what is the future? There are people who call it Afrofuturism now, but that term, there will be new terms for it. There will be marinage before that. There will be other ones after both. But the question is, how do we connect between past and future? And that image of the bird, that in some sense is the kind of archetype for not how do we write, but in the service of whom, in the service of what, and, uh, and, and, and hopefully some, if any of what I mentioned in our conversation has resonance with your listeners, then um, that also brings me and should bring us all satisfaction. Thank you. And thank you. And thank you. And y'all, please, please, please go get all of the books that were on, you know, the, this, the new books in African-American studies, summer, summer syllabus. Um, and actually, this gives me an idea of actually, um, you know, the re, uh, uh, building uh, syllabus as well that, I, that I'm going to talk to the network about creating um, on the side as a result of this conversation because you know, you're giving us language here. Um, which is always great. That's that's the you know Douglas talked about like that right the liberation of language, um, and so uh, once again, folks, we've had the amazing opportunity to have uh, a scholar who's a, who's a who's a colleague and my friend, Dr. Neil Roberts, and Dr. Roberts teaches Africana studies, political theory, and the philosophy of religion at Williams College, and he is also the chair and associate professor of Africana studies and faculty affiliate in political science and religion and because this brother's doing it all is the is uh dr Roberts is also the w4 schumann faculty fellow in democratic studies at williams college and so it has been an amazing opportunity to have him on new books in african-american studies a podcast on the new books network i am your host adam mcneil Please, if you enjoyed this conversation and the other ones in the in, in the network and on the channel, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcast. And also subscribe. Please do so. So you can always get our conversations to your phone or whatever device you hear us from at the time at which they, they are produced. So until next time, folks, I am your host, Adam McNeil of New Books and African American Studies again. Over and out.